Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strategic News Service Future in Review podcast. Um, I'm here this week. My name is Barrett Anderson. I'm the COO of Future in Review and the Strategic News Service, and I'm here with Evan Anderson, who you may notice that we have a habit of, of bringing relatives on this podcast. Evan is the CEO of an initiative called Invent IP, which is focused on fighting uh, nation state sponsored intellectual property theft. And he also has been the lead author throughout the pandemic of the uh, uh, viral economy, which was our biweekly uh, look into where the virus was going, what the economic repercussions were. He's my personal uh, COVID advisor. I look to him for all of all of my answers about when should I wear masks, when should I not wear masks. The answer is always wear a mask, and uh, it is my great delight to have him here with us today. It will not be it is the first time, but it will not be the last time, Evan. Thank you. So you we're here today to talk a little bit more about a series that you've been working on in the Global Report about disengagement with China. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? For those who haven't been following along, you know, this podcast goes out to everyone out there. Um, anyone can watch it on YouTube. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, just to kind of reiterate too, this is today we're talking about a series that I've been writing that actually kind of laces into my work at Invent IP. And that work is, you know, very clearly focused on intellectual property theft, but that is very much a part of the system that I was writing about in the disengagement series. Um, I think the easiest way to understand what we mean when we talk about disengagement, what I mean when I talk about disengagement, is to um, first kind of mention its opposite, right? So uh, throughout our history uh, in, in the modern era dealing with the People's Republic of China and the government there in the mainland, uh, we, we had a period here just recently of about 50 years of strong engagement. And so um, people probably know this, but if they don't, Nixon went in 72 you know, met with the Chinese government, essentially ushered in a new era of having new relations with China, um, kind of a different era and, and a big change for our current, um, at the time, Cold War strategy. And so um, say about that what you will, uh, it, it led to a period, a prolonged period, wherein a number of different dynamics emerged. Um, one, it did appear for a while, particularly under um, some leaders like Deng Xiaoping, that China was going to reform and open up more. So there, I think there was strong reason to believe that at certain times, um, that, that interacting with China and engaging with China was a good thing. Uh, however, we then also entered a prolonged period wherein that trend was reversed. And so the kinds of market reforms and things along those lines that you know human rights reforms actually come top of mind too. The things along those lines that we had perhaps hoped across much of the world, particularly in the US, uh, would come from the natural interaction of a post-Mao China with the rest of the world, uh, those didn't really come to pass the way that people had hoped. And so we actually saw a backsliding. I would say it began really in the mid-2000s, um, early 2000s, particularly when we look at whether the economy was going to reform. It was very clear, even back in 2005 to 2010, that what we were actually entering was an era of IP theft, right? And so I've worked a lot on that. Um, instead of seeing uh, increasingly removed, you know, strange policies that were very, uh, very focused on, you know, state-owned enterprises, et cetera, it appeared like that was going to happen. 
And then very quickly, by the time we were in the mid 2010s here, it was very obvious we were going the opposite direction and quickly uh, and, and SOEs did not disappear and you know market reforms ceased to happen or did not happen. Um, certain ones that we had hoped for did not happen. And so that period of engagement, uh, it, had a, it had a point to it, I think, from the perspective of the international community. Uh, we were hoping that the government of China would cease to oppress its own people, cease to want to oppress other people, right, right. Uh, open up its markets, you know, join us in the international right. community of nations and sure. move forward with life. But um, yeah. we so then- I think, ended, I think yeah. everyone, Evan, everyone, at least most of our viewers of watchers will understand why we chose to engage with China in the first place and the benefits that it posed for us as, when I say us, I mean the U United States where you and I both live. We also have members all over the world, but um, why the US in particular and a lot of the rest of the world chose to engage so heavily with China, right? Like yeah. cost savings to businesses all across the board. But where are we now? Tell me about like what's going on now. Why is why are you now advocating a sudden disengagement? Yeah, so and I wouldn't say it's sudden necessarily. I think I think when we talk about disengagement, people think it's it must be sudden or it will be sudden, and it I don't think it will. Um, but that period that I just described is now over, and we've entered a period in which Xi Jinping is now very much in control of the both the Politburo and the party, the Chinese Communist Party, and the apparatus of government and the military in China. And so that's different than what we saw before. And so while you may have been validated by um, certain occurrences in the past, I don't think you can any longer make the argument that the trend line in China is uh, any sort of improved relations with its neighbors or the international community of nations based on our engagement with them. In fact, there are a number of categories where we've had more trouble with them because we engaged with them. And by them, I, I directly refer to the Politburo of the CCP and to Xi Jinping. Um, than we did in the past, not engaging. And so I think that it's very hard for people to uh, wrap their minds around the idea that on certain things we would disengage with a country that is so intertwined in the international community. But um, we can get into this, some of the specifics in a moment, but there are definite reasons and very clear and strong reasons that we need to, and that it actually would be a good thing to move from a period where we are engaging and thereby supporting some of the things that they are doing in the top of the Politburo um, compared to a new world in which we say, actually, we will not support this. We will not pump dollars. One common refrain we have so, is- So what are, what are those reasons though? Yeah, so let's, let's start from the top. So economically, we thought by engaging, we would, we would see benefits to trade on both sides, right? And that happens often. Um, there's, there's a lot of full-blown you know, economic theses on the, on the benefits to trading with partners in, in relatively good faith. We did not find that that was the case. Instead, we saw not only a prolongation of a period of rampant IP theft, but in fact, um, accelerating IP theft in certain areas. And that's led to the destruction of businesses and jobs uh, by, directly by the Communist Party of China and their state-owned enterprises across the entire innovating world, right? So um, that didn't work. Engaging there cost us money, it cost us jobs. If you look at international finance, we are now funding companies in, in indirect ways through our financial system. We even list some of them on the New York Stock Exchange, for instance, and we have pension funds funding them, putting the dollars of our you know, various pensioners at risk. Um, and, and they are not responding in kind in any way, shape or form on the Chinese government side. So you have this kind of unequal engagement that we're trying and still trying that we should cease to try because that's funneling money 
into some of the companies that actually are working for a government that declares that it is directly working against our interests. Right. Um, that also applies very deeply to human rights. So um, I am not here to moralize. I think if you know me, you know exactly where I stand on this. Um, even if you left all moral arguments behind, the erosion of which the I don't think we want to do, which you by should the way, because we, at, at least at SNS, we we deeply believe that uh, yeah. <laughs> the kinds of things that you're discussing about to, to bring up are are morally incorrect. So even even if you left all of those arguments behind, it is not in our interest to have that occurring in the world. Period. Uh, it does not serve the interests of democracy, free speech, or human rights elsewhere to have these large totalitarian dictatorships abusing their own people. It sets a bad trend line because the more that it goes on and we ignore it, the less ground we have to stand on. So even from a geostrategic perspective, it does not work in any interest of any country that is not a totalitarian dictatorship to have rampant human rights crises going on, including the you know, establishment of concentration camps in Xinjiang. Uh, that's that's on a level that we haven't seen for decades. Uh, and that kind of thing actually erodes the basis of democracy and human rights that we've been trying to build across the rest of the world for the past 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. So um, I think that on all of these fronts, and I've got one more for you and then we can move on, but on all these fronts, it's very clear that by engaging with the government of China while they continued to abuse these various systems, um, international organizations also comes to mind. Uh, we're, we're actually fueling the destruction of a system that we rely upon for the quality of life the rest of us enjoy. And that's a it major international crisis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and one more thing, uh, as if there weren't many more, um, but one of the most important pieces that I wrote about, which I just concluded the series with, is the environment. So we are in a position at this point where climate change threatens the life of pretty much everything on the planet. There's large consensus around that. In fact, there's large consensus around moving on that, although we're not doing it yet. Uh, at the same time, you have a government in China that is working hard to build more coal capacity than anyone has ever dreamed of across the planet and financing projects across the planet. In fact, they said publicly, don't, don't listen to what they say, watch what they do, but they said publicly that they would cease to finance those projects and it is actually clear at this point that they have not, and they have continued to finance new coal projects. So even if the rest of the world were to tackle the climate change issue head on, and I have you know, some, some strong reservations about whether we'll do a good job as, an, as a global community doing that, but even if we could, it wouldn't matter if China proceeds to build more coal capacity than we've ever heard of. So we've talked a lot about, about um, things that they are doing wrong. Yes. What tell me what like when you say the word disengagement mm -hmm. like describe a future u.s or a future country of any kind uh let's say like 10 years down the line that has successfully disengaged with china yeah so i think a lot what of people does that look like yeah i think a lot of people get a little bit misled by the by the word because i don't necessarily mean we disengage on all topics on all fronts including I, I do believe when people say that we need to engage in, in diplomatic ways on the environment, that may be a value, but we need to stop financing the projects, right? We need to stop doing business with the entities that are doing that. So in 10 years, what I would love to see is 
a completely different playing field where instead of standing by and letting ourselves be divided and conquered by, you know, operatives of the CCP around the world who are trying to split up Europe from the US, you'll see that a lot in their rhetoric. Um, they, want, they want us to feel like separate entities that have to deal with them one-on-one. -on -one. We need the opposite. And it's very clear in their rhetoric what they believe will actually change their behavior. And so that's a good signal to us because they are very worried every time we talk about cooperating. Mm -hmm. So um, there are about a hundred- You're saying every time you, the US and Europe talk about cooperating and aligning- Not forces. just the US and Europe, but, but most countries around the world talk about cooperating on an issue where China stands apart from the crowd, right? So um, Southeast Asia is a perfect example. There are plenty of you know, international okay, yeah. agreements that we are looking at, um, cooperation with India, cooperation, you know, the UK, the AUKUS, sorry, the AUKUS agreement, which is a military cooperative agreement, mutual defense agreements with South Korea, Japan, anytime those things get brought up, it's very clear that they in, in the Politburo see that as a threat to their system mm -hmm. um, because it, it immediately launches a new propaganda campaign from them about why that's silly and, you know, not in the interests of the nations at hand. It is in the interest of the nations at hand for almost exactly that reason, because in many ways, the, the future I envision that I believe we can achieve and that will be good for everyone involves a cooperation of nations and a cooperation of perhaps a majority of nations on the planet is necessary in order to stop some of these trends. Um, that's a very, very obvious uh, and salient point, I think, when it comes to violation of sovereign territory um, to fishing fleets, destroying fisheries around the world. It requires a cooperative solution. We can't do it alone. We can't ask Senegal, for instance, to simply police its own waters and stop, you know, 20,000 Chinese fishing vessels sponsored by the Chinese government from coming in and just completely obliterating their fisheries. But we need to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to, I would like to see a large collaboration between a large number of nations, the Europe, Europe and the US and, you know, the largest nations of East Asia is just the start, to be honest, because a lot of these issues are um, really, really actively getting worse all over Africa and South America as well. And so I think as a group, we can solve the problem. And that's what I hope to see. I hope to see a lot more of those international agreements. And I hope to see a lot more disengaging on the things that matter. So what does that mean? That means we should not be funding any organizations or companies or anything tied to the party, which based on their new national security laws is everything um, that, that helps to do the following things, destroy the environment, um, destroy innovative firms, uh, in the name of building, you know, national champion firms in China that can re then replace them on the global market, uh, increased surveillance, uh, increased human rights, uh, crises, you know, oppression, surveillance, uh, abuses, uh, any of those things. So all these issues that are kind of talked about separately, usually in the media, are actually part of the same problem because we're, we're dealing with the same system. So whether you need your own sources of, you know, rare earth elements and lithium batteries or your own sources of, you know, technology that does not then with export controls that does not then get exported so that when you develop a new camera, it becomes a tool of oppression in Xinjiang. They're all kind of the same question, which is how much do we engage with China? And I would argue that on a lot of fronts, we can very clearly make the choice wisely to disengage while on some certain fronts, we probably will not. And that is all right as well. Well, so given all of that, what do you think are the most important, what would be the most natural first steps, right? Because you're, you're talking about this, like so far, 
in a very broad sense. Mm -hmm. But like, what I want to know is if I'm investing in companies, right. Or if I am running my own business, what are the first steps? And I I would say like specifically in those two categories, let's, let's talk about that. Like what are the ways that you can protect yourself from potential repercussions of supply chain issues or, Mm -hmm. you know, all of which we've seen become more and more problematic in the last few years. Yeah. And I've actually, you know, that we have seen lots of new problematic um, dynamics emerged, particularly during the pandemic, of course. Um, But I actually would say that on that economic front, there's a lot of reason for hope as well, because I think that some of the first steps are already being at least, you know, thought up, dreamt up, discussed, at least discussed publicly, which is a major sea change from a decade ago. Um, Some of them are already being enacted. So I would say obvious first steps, some of which are beginning to take place and just need to be completed as a project would be international collaborations that we're all on the same front, um, you know, cooperative deals of various types that protect things like innovation by protecting IP rights. Uh, I would say that we should cease trading in certain markets, we should stop supplying the PRC government with certain things, particularly anything that we can imagine might be dual use, right? So if someone declares their intention to potentially be an aggressor to many of their neighbors and declares them an adversary to your system, you probably don't want to develop top-notch AI that can be used in military applications and then allow them to license it. Um, So I think that there are some really obvious spots there um, also, basic supply chain re-diversification, right? We, as a globe, we allowed our supply chains to become extremely wrapped up in China on a number of top industries. That would be things like tech, right? Consumer electronics, various things that we will very much need, uh, whether China wants us to have them or not in the future. And those things are, are very clearly critical to get from diverse sources, including yourself. So um, we are working on that in the United States, and particularly in particular in some industries like rare earth elements, right? Where people are working on trying to reopen some mines. There's a lot there when it comes to the environment, et cetera. But what we did was export that entire industry on accident to a country that could cut off our supply at any time and is relatively aggressive these days. So that's not a good thing. And I think we can work with Europe, we can work with South America, we can work with Africa, and we can work with the rest of East Asia and be fine on a number of these fronts. A lot of the companies that are pulling supply chain activities out of China are simply moving to other countries that are more trustworthy. And that includes a pretty broad spectrum of countries that can host manufacturing, supply, et cetera. So um, I think that there's a lot of hope there. I think that that is an easy first step uh, in, a, in a generally hard project. And we are already making progress on it. It is not easy in the sense that it is um, simple or will not take time and energy, but it is easy in the sense that it is uh, not hard to see why it would be critical to the national and international security of the world. So, okay, so you talked about some things that, I think you were getting some of the things that companies can do, right? Mm -hmm. So like you can choose to move your operations to another country. At this point, I would say you owe it to your shareholders, probably legally, because you, you probably can no longer defend the idea that it's safe to have your supply chain concentrated in China. I don't think that's defensible. All right, but there, but there are other aspects of that that you probably are not. If you're being realistic as a business owner, it's really hard to cut ties on things like lithium, right? Where this, there yes, are... and no. yes and no. So uh, what, right what... now, yes. So there needs to be some long-term planning here. Right now, you may have a lot of trouble sourcing batteries um, because there's so much demand and China has so many battery producers. 
but there are others, right? And so I think building out those kinds of programs, there have been a lot of really hopeful new policies that I see as a potentially good thing, uh, wherein we, we give government support across Europe and the United States to either reshoring industries like that, um, building new plants. I think it's great to build new battery plants. They are going to be critical to the entire economy of the future, right? Um, and particularly if we're going renewable, which we must. So um, those things, I think, give me great hope. I think you can, you can well defend any government program that helps to um, incubate the technology of the future within your own shores or within other shores that are simply not under the control of the Politburo. If you are, so, so let's get back to the like personal investment question, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, if I'm looking at the market right now, what, you know, I think you and I, we talk about this all the time. So it seems kind of obvious to us, but if your job, if your goal as an investor is to make money, you might make different choices than if your goal as an investor is to avoid funding human rights abuses and climate destruction, right? And so I'm curious, yeah. <clears throat> are there specific stocks that you know of that might seem to be safe, but are actually being controlled by the CCP? Yeah, it depends on what you mean by that. But very obviously, I would say any company listed in China, it deserves more scrutiny than many other places. So it's actually already kind of a, a known factor that um, a lot of the accounts for companies in China that have been listed on the New York Stock Exchange, listed on foreign exchanges are actually um, fraudulent, right? And so as an investor, even if the only thing I cared about was my margin, that's a huge problem because someone's gonna get stuck, right? Holding that paper when it goes to zero. And so that's actually happened to a lot of people to the tune of billions of dollars, wherein they jumped on the bandwagon of, you know, some very hot companies in China. And I think right now we're seeing a slowdown in China compounded by a number of factors, but particularly compounded by extreme pandemic lockdowns that really sort of beggar belief at this point. Um, that's going to cause the kind of economic slowdown that we've been waiting for for a while, knowing how fraudulent many of the accounts in China are. So if you're an investor, it's not a good time to be buying anything in China, right? You've got right, an economy. I think, I think my question is more to like, what stocks listed on the US stock exchange should you avoid that may have unforeseen? Um... Well, so that's actually happening as well too. So I think the finance world understands that and, and perhaps retail investors do not. But um, recently we are seeing some of this really come to a head where companies with high exposure to those countries are also in trouble. Right. And so we can just call out, you know, who, who has the highest exposure in China? Well, Apple's one of them. That's going to hurt at some point. You can't have that much exposure to a country that's this unstable and have good results over the long term. Right. So um, I think that that if you just looked at who is getting the largest amounts of revenue and doing a lot of business in China, you could also get a who's who of people who have overexposed their firm to all of the fraught aspects of the system that I'm describing. And so if you're looking at the equity markets, then that's that's one thing you would do. And I, I, I've seen people talk about that now today with both Russia and China for similar reasons. Um, you, you know, you don't want that exposure. Right. And a lot of people in finance are a little bit past the idea that that exposure is going to be, you know, a good thing as long as the, you know, they can get out early before the, the fraud is caught or whatever. Um, that exposure is extremely dangerous, particularly when whatever wasn't fraudulent is now threatened by lockdowns and Xi Jinping's new policies, right? So we've seen a lot of damage done to Chinese equities 
but we've also seen a lot of damage done to companies exposed to China for exactly that reason. And, and that plays in very much as well to the same issues that we're talking about with supply chains. Well, Ev, I think we're about out of time, but this has been a super interesting conversation. If you want to learn more about how to successfully disengage from China, you can become a subscriber of the Strategic News Service Global Report. That's at stratnews.com. And um, as a subscriber, you will gain access to our archive of, of content. I think, Evan, you also have our potentially this work coming out as a book is that uh, yeah i'd be remiss if i didn't say that it will be a book so uh keep your eyes out we're still in the uh, process of getting it formatted and edited but um it will be viable and purchasable uh as a book coming give, soon give it to all of your family members for christmas <laughs> yeah. next year particularly those who have overexposed their finances to chinese interests and don't realize the risks <laughs> thanks so.